right, so many of you guys already see we have a book for you guys. Uh, this is something that we kind of printed out for you guys to kind of help take notes and not fall asleep. Feel free to use it as much as you want, as low as you want. And in the back, you can see the member covenant that we have, um, which is what all of our members agree, agree to. And we'll talk more about it in the next three weeks. So don't, if you have questions about it now, hopefully we'll be explaining a lot in the next three weeks. Um, so this is a three-week course. Uh, it it kind of covers the three main things that we believe as a church family, Jesus-centered, family, and mission. So we're going to take three weeks to kind of dive into those. And week one, we're just gonna, we'll be covering Jesus-centered today. Um, and at the end of three weeks, um, obviously no pressure. If you want to become a member, feel free to, to come on board. If you still want to, don't want to, just want just interested and want to keep checking things out, totally fine. Um, so... So really our goal with the class is, at the end of the class, there's no pressure at all to become a member. Uh, We just want you to feel like at the end of the class, you have the information you would need to decide if you wanted to become a member. That's kind of our goal. Yeah. And we'll do like a Q&A after end of each week, and we'll do like a maybe a bigger, a longer Q&A at the end of the third week. So if you have any questions throughout, just feel free to write them down. We'll, no questions is off limit, as long as me and Ken have the freedom to say, I don't know. So, That's our favorite answer. Yeah, so it's like if you ask me something like this, I was like, I don't really know, but I'll look it up and tell you what I may think about it. Oh, uh, no. You want me to just make it up? Okay, yeah. okay. I'll go with that. We'll, I'll, I'll, I'll just make it up. I'll so, yep. Um, so yeah. So we'll just basically each week will be like forty-ish uh, minutes of teaching, and then we'll have you know a half hour or so at the end for. Questions, maybe a little bit less this week, but um, so that's kind of goal. That all makes sense. Structure of the class. Any questions on that part? Cool. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. Um, the first piece of our identity statement as a church. So our identity statement: Jesus-centered family on mission. This week we're going to be talking about what it means that we are Jesus-centered. Um, so that basically, when we talk about what it means to be Jesus-centered, we're mainly talking about something called the gospel. Uh, does anybody know what the word gospel means? It's it is truth, absolutely. Does anybody know what the the literal word gospel means? Mm-hmm. Good news. Yep. So it it actually just means good news. So uh, the language itself, it actually comes from uh, its political language. So what would happen back in the day is like any time one king would like lead a charge to conquer another king, uh, then they would send a herald back and he would have what was called the gospel. And the gospel would sound something like, hey, the old king is dead, new king is in power, things are going to be better now. And that was called a gospel. Um, And so the language itself is actually taken from that, but within the context of following Jesus, it means something altogether different. Um, So before Christianity is a philosophy or a way of life or a religion, it is first an announcement. Uh, When we talk about what it means, what Christianity means, it's first an announcement. It's an announcement of something God has done. So we got to talk about what exactly is that announcement. And to, in order to understand why the gospel is good news, it helps to understand the situation that we're in that requires good news. So first, got to talk about what sin is. Um, according to scripture, we live in a good world gone bad. A good world gone bad. So God designed the world to work in a certain way, and in the beginning, they actually worked that way. Everything was as it should be. There was no pain, no suffering, no crime, no Miley Cyrus, none of those things that corrupt <laughs> the goodness of what the world was. Uh, the Sorry world, if anyone likes Miley Cyrus. <laughs> well, I mean, we can all agree. 
She's worse for the world. But um, <laughs> wrecking ball, man, come on. We can all agree she's worse for the world. Um, so the world in the beginning was good. Um, anything that currently is broken or incomplete about the world w- w- dis- did not exist in the beginning. Um, so when we talk about sin, I think it's helpful to talk about what sin is and what it isn't. So if you've got a background in church or if you've just got a background around church people, I think at times the church has made sin sound like something that it's actually not, or at least given an incomplete picture of it. So we need a fuller understanding of what sin is. We need a fuller understanding of what sin is. When most people hear the word sin, uh, they just think something we're not supposed to do which is partially true. I would just say that's far from the full picture and definition of what sin is. Um, First, sin is not just a breaking of the rules. So one way to say it that I think is really helpful, sin is not bad because it's against the rules. Sin is against the rules because it's bad. Sin is not bad because it's against the rules. Sin is against the rules because it's bad. Here's what I mean by that. So we've got a uh, 15-month-old son now named Whitaker. A lot of you guys know him. Uh, His favorite thing to do is to play with the trash cans in our house. I don't know why. We have spent like hundreds, probably thousands of dollars on toys for him to play with. What he wants to play with is trash cans. He wants to take the trash cans. He wants to dump everything in them out onto the floor, play with them, put trash in his mouth, all of that. That is his favorite thing to play with. And so one of the first things that we had to teach Wit to not do was play with the trash. I I was nervous for a while that Wit's first word was going to be no, because it was just every time he picked up the trash can, I was going, Wit, no, no, do not play with the trash. And I'm sure in his mind, it feels like, why does my dad not want me to play with the one thing that I want to play with in our entire house? Like, it probably seems so arbitrary to him that I would have a rule that said, don't play with the trash. And I think sometimes people have that idea of who God is. People have a picture of God that he just arbitrarily picked certain things that we are and are not supposed to do, and they have no rhyme or reason to them, uh, and he just says not to do them because he doesn't want us to have fun. In reality, God actually looks at the world and he sees certain things, kind of like I look at my son playing with trash, and I go, okay, if my son plays with trash, that's going to go bad for him because he's going to get sick. That's going to go bad for our whole family because there's going to be germs all over the house and we're all going to get sick and it's just not a good idea to have a house full of trash strewn all out over the floor so and god in a similar way looks at the world and sees things that would corrupt the way the world was supposed to work that would harm us that would harm other people that would be bad for us and rightfully says hey because it's going to go bad if you do these things i'm going to have rules that say don't do this and do this So to me, it's helpful to remember that sin is not bad just because it's against the rules. Sin is against the rules because it's bad. That's how it works. Um, I think in order to have a full full understanding of what sin is, it helps to break it down in two ways. So first, let's talk about sins of commission and omission. Sins of commission and omission. First, uh, sin is both commission and omission. It's probably one of the blanks there. And then commission is uh, things we do that we shouldn't. Commission is things that we do that we shouldn't, and omission is things that we don't do that we should. Things we don't do that we should. 
So, easy example of this, uh, stealing from my neighbor is wrong. That's a sin of commission. That's a sin that I commit. It's something that I do that I shouldn't do. But also to see my neighbor in need and refuse to help him, that's a sin of omission. That's something that God calls me to do that I neglect to do. And both of those are sin. I know a lot of times the ones that especially church people talk a lot about are sins of commission, things that you do that you shouldn't. But I think we've also got to understand that sin is omission. It's things that God calls us to do, like love our neighbor, that we choose not to do. So sin is both commission and omission. And then second, another helpful way to understand sin is head, heart, and hands. So sin includes our head, our heart, and our hands. Sin at a head level is when we think wrong things. Sin at a head level is when we think wrong things. Sin at a heart level is when we love wrong things. Sin at a heart level is when we love wrong things. And sin at a hands level is when we do wrong things. Sin at a hands level is when we do wrong things. So uh, let's take lust, for example. Uh, At a head level, it is wrong to have thoughts of intimacy with somebody that you're not married to. That's sin at a head level. Uh, at a heart level, it's, it's wrong to long and lust after and cultivate thoughts of lust towards somebody that you're not married to. That's sin at a heart level. But then at a hands level, it's also wrong to have physical intimacy with somebody that you're not married to. That's a hands level sin. And I know a lot of times the emphasis, again, gets put on the last one. It's all about hands level sin, when in reality the Bible talks a lot about head level sin and heart level sin. We've got to understand that sin encompasses all of those. Make sense? Any questions on that? Yeah, we just start out the class real lighthearted. Oh, yeah. Start <laughs> off. Real yeah, we just absolutely. come in with a big, heavy bat. Oh, yeah. It'll get better, I promise. Maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> all right. So we've talked about what sin is. Now let's talk about what sin does. Um, so I, I said at the beginning that we wanted to make sure we had a fuller understanding of sin. So let's talk about what sin does. What is it that makes sin bad? Well, first, sin breaks relationship with God. Sin breaks relationship with God. So if you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sin, there's immediately this relational distance between them and God. There's this awkwardness in relationship to God. You maybe even felt that when when there's sin in your life, you feel awkward approaching God. You don't want to approach him. You don't want to be in relationship with him. Sin breaks relationship with God. That's because sin by its very nature separates. And then number two, uh, sin breaks relationship with each other. Sin breaks relationship with each other. So sin doesn't just break relationship with God, it also kind of severs our relationship with other people. So again, in Adam and Eve, when uh, God comes to them and asks them what they did after they sinned by eating of the fruit, what, do they immediate, what does Adam immediately do when God asks him what happened? Anybody remember? He blame shifts. He immediately goes, well, God, really, I mean, I, I just ate because this woman you put here with me told me to eat. And so immediately he not only turns against God, he turns against his wife, the person who's give, who he's given to love and cherish. He turns against her. There's relational separation between them two. So sin breaks relationship with each other. Um, lastly, uh, sin breaks God's design for the world. Sin breaks God's design for the world. Because of sin, the world does not function as it should anymore. 
Because of greed, for instance, much of the world lives in poverty because people want more than they should want. Because of an obsession with sex and taking sex out of its good context that God designed it, the sex slavery exists in our world. Sexual abuse exists in our world. So not only does sin break our relationship with God, not only does it break our relationship with each other, it actually breaks down the way the world was supposed to work in the first place. Most of all the brokenness that you and I experience on a daily basis is the result of sin. All right, with all that in mind, now we get into what the gospel is and does. Um, So when we see that sin is at the core of everything that has gone wrong with our world, we realize if anything is going to get better, we need something to happen to deal with the problem of sin. And so this is where we get into the gospel. Though God had no obligation to do this, though he didn't have to, he set into motion a plan to essentially unbreak everything that we broke because of our sin. And the way he did that was by sending his son Jesus to come to earth to live a perfect life. He committed no sin, sins of omission or commission, no sin of the head, heart, or hands. He lived a perfectly righteous life in every way. And then he went to the cross because he had no sin of his own. He was able to pay for our sin and he was able to take on the sins of the entire world. So look at how 1 Peter 2.24 describes it. We might have that printed in the book. I'm not sure. Um, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed so what what god actually does in jesus is he he takes our sin onto himself and he does what's called atoning for our sin now atone is a very religious sounding word all atone means is that he paid for it the nature of sin is that it has to be paid for. So to use a really elementary example, if I go over to JR's house and I break a lamp at his house. Uh, no, break his uh, wrestling belt. Oh, if I break his wrestling belt <laughs> at his house. If I go over and I break that, uh, a, there's a few different options of what can happen. Yeah. First, after, <laughs> after JR beats me up, after JR, JR beats me up, uh, I, I either pay for the broken wrestling belt, that's me atoning for the belt, that's me paying for it. Uh, number two, he pays for it, which would be him atoning for the lamp, or for the wrestling belt. I love this example so much. Uh, that's him atoning for it. Or three, he could say, don't worry about it, uh, it's, it's really not a big deal. But really, that's still him atoning for it because he's absorbing the cost of that wrestling belt. He is now effectively one awesome wrestling belt poorer in his life because I broke it. Does that make sense? So regardless of what happens, somebody has to atone for the, the brokenness that my sin has caused. When the same way, sin by its very nature has to be atoned for. So there's a few different things that can happen. We can try to make up to God for our sin, which we know never ultimately works, or God can actually atone for our sin himself. And that's what happens in the gospel. So the good news is that though we have broken relationship with God, he has not left it up to us to pay for it, to atone for the broken relationship. But there's something else that has to happen. So if Jesus takes away our sin, all that does is gets us back to neutral with God. We still have no hope of a vibrant relationship with him. So in the gospel, not only does Jesus take away our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. Not only does he take away our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. 
So Jesus' perfect performance, everything that he did perfectly, that we have no ability to do perfectly, Jesus actually gives us, credits us with that performance. So now when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' perfection. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And that's what gives us hope of relationship with God. Good place to see that. It's all over the New Testament, but specifically 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it's verse 21. says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does Jesus take away our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. Now, if that was all the gospel was about, it would be incredible news, right? That in itself is an unbelievable truth. But that's not all that the gospel is about. So through reconciling people to himself, through that process of making individuals right with God, Jesus is not only handling our individual sin problem, but he's slowly doing what the Bible calls reconciling all things to himself. What that means in short is that Jesus is putting the world back together. He's taking everything that the brokenness of our sin has caused, all that separation, and by reconciling people to himself, he's actually making things right again. He's putting the world back the way it was meant to function before our sin. So with all that in mind, now we are finally ready, uh, no further ado, for a definition of the gospel. The definition of the gospel is that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling all things to himself. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling all things to himself. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling all things to himself. That is kind of our operational definition of the gospel. Now, here's what I'll say about that. The definition of the gospel, uh, though there are some pieces that have to be present, however you define it, this is not like a perfect formula, all right? This is our best summary of what the Bible teaches in a lot of different places about what the gospel is. So you don't have to like know these exact words for it to be true, but there should be elements of this stuff in your definition of the gospel. You're going to find even as you read through the New Testament that the biblical authors a lot of times will tweak and adjust how they describe the gospel in different places. So it's not a, it's not a magic formula. It's just this is our best attempt at a summary of it. That makes sense? Now here's why both of those pieces are important. So there's kind of two pieces to our definition. There's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and there's Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. Here's why you need both. There are a lot of churches and Christians that will put a lot of emphasis on the first half about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And while that is fantastic, sometimes they can make Christianity into just this personal kind of pietistic relationship with God that has no real implications for how I treat other people or how I interact with people in the world. And that's when it becomes problematic because Jesus is going to say, you love God, and the second one is like it. You love your neighbor. So Jesus doesn't have this isolated definition where it's really just about this kind of secret personal relationship you have with God and it has no implications. But the other thing can be true too. So a lot of churches will emphasize the he's reconciling all things to himself. A lot of churches will make a big deal out of reconciliation. The problem is if you leave out the first part about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have no real power to deal with the main problem in the world, which is sin. 
So you got to have both pieces. you got to understand this, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that he is through that reconciling all things to himself. Make sense? Big idea with the gospel. Any questions on that part before we move on? We'll also have a chance for questions at the end. Cool. So for me, I, I grew up in the South all my life. I was basically going to church as far as I can remember. So there's something that I noticed in the South that a lot of times we confuse the gospel and something that kind of the South is honestly more following is religion. So I think we, we need to spend a little bit of time distinguishing between what is gospel and what is religion. So... And I cannot tell you how many conversations I've been in where the, kind of the topic of Christianity comes up and people will start explaining why they're not religious. Uh, and it, the conversation usually goes something like this. I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell just because they don't follow the rules. And I'm, my response is, yeah, yeah, I don't believe in that either. Like, yeah, I agree. Or, or the conversation would go, I, I can't believe in a God who has arbitrary set of rules that you're supposed to follow. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that either. I, I'm with you on that. Or will they even say, I cannot believe God only rewards people who are squeaky clean. And I'm going, yeah, I definitely don't believe in that because if that's true, I'm, I'm screwed. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have a shot at this. So what, I, what I'm starting to notice over the years is this. Like, most of people's objection to Christianity has more to do with an objection to religion. So they, well, a lot of times when they're saying, I reject Jesus, what, what they actually are really saying is, I'm rejecting religion. Um, so I think for us to be able to love the city, our city well here in Knoxville, I think we got to be able to tell people about who Jesus is and, and why the gospel is good news, kind of what we kind of said in, in the beginning. Um, and it's important for us to be able to distinguish the difference between what gospel and religion. So because I think religion is kind of the air we breathe in the South, and, it, and that definitely applies to Knoxville. So the most obvious form of religion actually comes in the a form of self-righteousness. Um, so in order to, to kind of see that, to kind of, to unpack that a little bit, um, I'm going to kind of jump into Luke 18, Luke chapter 18. Uh, this is kind of a classic parable that Jesus uses uh, to kind of talk about what is religion and what is the gospel. So Luke 18, verse 9, it goes, it starts with, this is Jesus. He, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were uh, righteous and treated others with contempt. So in that one sentence, uh, Jesus actually defines religion um, and it's trusting in yourself. Or something that you have done. So from the from the very start, Jesus defined what religion is. It's trusting in yourself that you're righteous and you're treating others with contempt. So that's Jesus, off the bat, that's how Jesus defined it. And then in verse ten, he goes into two men went up to the temp, uh, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So if you didn't grow up in the church, the Pharisees were kind of like the religious elites back in the day. So they were kind of like. Mr. Smarty Pants, like if they're like the best, like cream of the crop, the best of the best, even for the Jewish education system, they're like the kids that go to grad school. Like they're, they're the smartest kids possible around. Um, and then the tax collector were kind of just like the, however the most extreme end of that is the thugs. Basically no one, no one like uh, the tax collector, they're kind of the modern day slumlords. Uh, and then verse 11, Jesus keeps going. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, so this, this guy, this Pharisee guy starts praying. And his, in his prayer, we kind of get a window into how he views himself. We kind of see this is how he sees himself. Um, and what is the first thing he does in his prayer? He points out that he's better than 
this list of other people. Um, he even he even pulls. I, I, I'm actually even better than this guy right here sitting next to me. Um, so commonly, I think uh, in my life, the way I kind of see that is, uh, I will say things like, "I mean, I'm not perfect, but I will never do that." So in a way, that's what the, the like that's kind of the same vein of what the Pharisees doing here. It's like he explained why he thinks he's better than people, and then he and then he proceeds to submit his spiritual resume. Um, he started talking about, I, I tithe, I, I fast twice a week, I do all these things, I'm better than these people. So the Pharisee's identity is completely built on his own accomplishments. Uh, so, which means that he looks down uh, his nose at anyone who doesn't have the same list of accomplishments, anything, anyone that he feels like it's just not up to par, up to the standard that he has set for himself. Um, and what's more, even more interesting is he is under the impression that God's affection towards him is all based on his accomplishments, based on his righteousness. That I, God loves me more, receives me, like will, will receive me, or he he is more proud of me because I do all these things for him. And then we look at verse thirteen, which kind of the contrast. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." So the tax collector's approach to God is com- kind of the exact opposite than what the Pharisee was. Um, he compares himself, not to other people, which is what the Pharisee did, he, he compares himself to God. You, you guys catch that? Um, and he, he is fully aware of his lack of spiritual resume to submit. He, he, had, he didn't even submit anything. He didn't, he didn't give a list of accomplishment. He just, he just he, once, when he compares himself to God, he realized, I got nothing to bring to the table. Um, so he basically submitted, like kind of threw himself upon God's grace. And then in verse 14... This is kind of where it gets a little bit uh, interesting when Jesus starts saying, in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, being the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's kind of the surprise ending, which, like Jesus basically said, the tax collector, the thug, goes home righteous before God, and the righteous elite, the Pharisee, Despite all his spiritual uh, accomplishment and resume and rule following, that guy does not go home justified. So, so by telling this story, uh, Jesus creates a new category of non-Christian, and we, and we kind of often don't think about, because um, the reality is your sin can be a barrier uh, to your relationship with Jesus, but so can your good works. Okay, so it's in our relationship with God. Sin is obviously what's going to break our relationship with him, but Jesus actually created a new category. Your good works can actually be something that breaks your relationship with him. Um, You can reject God by obeying all the rules or by keeping all of them perfectly. Breaking all the rules. By breaking all the rules or or by keeping all of them perfectly. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the fill in the blanks. You can reject God by breaking all the rules or by keeping them all perfectly. It's easy, I think, for us to see... um, how an outright rebellion is offensive to God. But I think it's even more difficult for us to see that our religious activity can be just as offensive. Um, So case in point, Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for people who think that religious activity makes them right with God. With the way that Jesus picks on the Pharisees is just really brutal and really honest and really raw. But the way he approached the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, he has some of the most gentle words for them. so the, the way the Bible looks at humanity, it's not, it, the Bible doesn't create the category of 
the people who do all the right things and then there are the people who don't do all the right things. Um, the way the Bible kind of categorizes all of us, it's, uh, they're, they're, it's not bad people and good people, it's bad people and Jesus. Those are actually the two categories that the Bible creates for us. Um, it's not bad people or good people, it's bad people and Jesus. So that's kind of the big premise of gospel and religion, but I think um, something what's going on in the South is a little bit more mild than what's going on. We, we, I think when we look at Knoxville, we don't see the extreme example of the Pharisee and we're the extreme example of the tax collector. We get kind of a lesser form that I think we would call cultural Christianity. Um, it, it might not be an outright that someone going around that I, you know, someone going in the streets and saying, I'm better than you, I'm better than all these people. Um, but it's something more mild, it's something more hidden. Um, so, so here's the, the reality, this is kind of in my best guesstimate. I will say probably 75% of people in Knoxville will identify themselves as a Christian. And if you were asked, or if you're going to ask them, what does that mean? What does that mean that you, when you say you're a Christian, what does that actually mean? They'll probably say some, some version of, well, I own and occasionally read uh, my Bible and I go to church sometimes, probably around Easter or Christmas time. And I'm just like a morally nice guy. Like, I'm, I'm pretty nice. I'm pretty nice with my neighbors generally. I'm pretty nice guy. Um, when you hear that, that's actually more of a form of a religion than gospel. And, and honestly, I think a lot of our people in the city, that's kind of when they think Christianity, that's what they think. I'm a morally nice person. I don't rob a bank. I, I, I treat my wife decently, and I treat my kids well. I treat my coworkers, my neighbors well. I'm, I'm kind of a genuinely nice guy, and there's nothing, anything about who Jesus is and who, how he needs Jesus or how she needs Jesus. It's about my list of accomplishments, and that's why God loves me more. So one easy way to identify uh, religion in all its forms yeah. is that religion always puts God on the wrong end of an if-then framework. Mm -hmm. So uh, religion always goes, well, if I do this, if I'm a good person, if I read my Bible, if I go to church, if I behave morally, if I'm better than these other people in my life, well, then God owes me a good life or God owes me heaven when I die or God will do this because I've put in the work. I've put in being a good person or I've put in doing this. So obviously God, in, as a result, will treat me this way. And then Jesus just kind of blows that up. He says, no, that's not, that's not how relationship with God works. The way that relationship with God works is that he gives us new life through the gospel and we respond. Um, and, but you can recognize religion because it almost always does the opposite. It puts God on the wrong end of an if-then framework. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's what our city needs more of, um, exam more examples of the gospel. Like, um, I think we need more people whose life looks differently, be not because they, they think God likes them more because of what they do, but because they already found that God likes them fully because of Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished for, for us on the cross. So I think that's what we need to give our city, the, more, the good news, the, the gospel, uh, more than anything. We, if we can demonstrate the gospel to them, I think that we have a shot in kind of helping them see um, there's something more than just following the right rules. It, it's actually something that can change their life fully. Um, so how, how do we become that type of a people? Because that's, that's our biggest uh, desire for us here in, in our city. Um, so what, how does that, how, what do we need to do to become that type of people or even stay that way? Um, and honestly, I think the only way for us to, uh, to be a, like a Jesus-centered, a gospel-centered group of people is to, again, in a return to the gospel. Um, so that's, that's kind of our next section. Um, but any questions so far? Everything makes sense? Okay. Can I grab this next part? 
So what? Can I grab this knife? Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's one of the things that we've just realized with being in the South. So Jeff and I both grew up in the South. Um, people think about the gospel usually as the way you become a Christian. So the gospel is the last five minutes of the message. It's the invitation. It's the altar call at the end of the message. It's the prayer that you say in order to become a Christian. Uh, and listen, there are elements of truth in all of that, okay? So that the gospel is how you become a Christian. Like, that's what we talked about earlier in the class. What I've realized with living in the South is that people think that's the only thing the gospel is. People think that the gospel is only how you become a Christian. And what we actually want to introduce here, and then, you know, once you become a Christian, then you move on to other things. So it's like yeah. you learn these super awesome methods of prayer that nobody knows about and only this one you Christian author. Yeah, you like learn Greek and Hebrew, you learn spiritual disciplines, all this stuff. And that's how you mature and grow as a Christian. What we want to actually submit in this class, and this is kind of the way that we operate and what it means when we say we want to be Jesus-centered, the gospel is not just how you become a Christian, it's how you grow as a Christian. The, The entire Christian life returns again and again to the gospel. That's That's actually how we grow as Christians is the gospel, not some super secret method of prayer, not some awesome method of reading the Bible. The way that we grow is by returning again and again to the gospel. So let me just give you some examples of how Paul unpacks this. Um, So maybe you ask the question, how do I grow in forgiveness? Well, Ephesians 4.32 says you forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the way that Paul says you learn how to forgive is by remembering and reflecting on how God forgave you in the gospel. Uh, how do you grow in generosity if you want to become a more generous person? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that Christ became poor so you and Christ should, uh, could become rich. And so what he's saying there is the way that you actually learn how to be okay with less money so that other people can have it is by remembering the gospel, remembering that God became poor so that you and Christ could become rich. Um, How do you grow in becoming a better husband? Uh, Ephesians 5.25, love your wife as Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. So Paul says the way that you grow in becoming a better husband is by remembering the gospel. Uh, How do you grow in loving other people? Well, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. The way that you love other people better is by remembering how Christ loved you in the gospel. Um, how do we grow in comforting other people in their suffering? Well, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we have received. So he says the way that we learn to comfort other people in their suffering is by remembering how Christ comforted us. So you kind of see the pattern. We could go on for days on these examples, but it's the way that the Bible says we grow is by remembering and reflecting on the realities of the gospel. And, and Paul doesn't go, hey, if you want to do this, just try harder. Yeah. Just do better. Just white knuckle your way to it to change yourself. Paul doesn't do that. Paul, Paul, it's always a call to remembrance. Remember what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you. Remember that. That's actually what's going to propel you to be able to do the things that you want to start out with in the first place. Because I think as humans, our tendency is, I just got to try hard. I just got to buckle down. I, I'm going to make a spreadsheet. I'm going to make a checklist. I'm going to, ah, new year, new me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to kill it. And then after about three weeks, you're like, ah, I'm over it. This is not going to work. But the reason why Paul reminds people with the gospel over and over again, because that's what's life-changing. That's what's actually sustainable. To call you go, remember the good news about who you are and who God is. Now, that's going to what's something that's going to sustain you. That's actually what's going to transform 
all the things that are, that's going on inside of you. Yeah. Okay. Confession. Yeah. So when you see yourself in the light of the gospel, one thing that kind of happens naturally is what the Bible calls confession. Um, and I, I want to define confession really quickly before we have all the uh, wrong images of confession. Uh, confession is simply being honest about your sin because of the gospel. Confession is simply being honest about your sin because of the gospel. So confession isn't you necessarily sit in the booth with me and Ken, and then you're telling me all the things, and then we said something Please magical, don't do that. and then send you out. Uh, no, we're not doing that. Please don't do that. Uh, but, it, but it's actually much more everyday life, much more simple. Just confessing. This is this is why I come short. This is I'm not perfect. This is why I come short in light, and then be, in, the, in light of the gospel. So. If it's true that we're all sinners and in need of God's grace, there's no logical reason that I wouldn't be honest about where I'm struggling. Because if, if the gospel says, I, I am a sinner, and the, good, and the good news is that he delivered me from my sin, there's, there's really no reason why I wouldn't be honest about it. Because I, it, in that moment, it's not about how, how, sh, like how I how come short of, you know, of being perfect. It's actually, no, I, I get to be honest about it because Jesus was already perfect in my place. So I get to be on, radically honest about where I am, so I don't have to hide. I don't have to form. I, I don't have to submit my spiritual resume anymore. Um, so, and I will even say this: um, to the degree that you understand and believe the gospel, is the extent to which you regularly confess. To the degree that you understand and believe the gospel, that is the extent to which you regularly con- uh, confess. Uh, so one of, my fa- top off. <laughs> one of my favorite examples of this. Uh, so some of you, the those of you that are already in a life group, you know that we have group memes that everybody is in, which are sometimes absolutely, occasionally are helpful, and most of the time are ridiculous. Uh, so my wife, then there's a there's like a guys group me and a girls group me, and then there's an everybody group me for the whole life group. And so uh, my wife one time, uh, her and I had like just had an argument. We pretty much never have arguments ever, you guys. But this one time we had had arguments, uh, an argument about money and how we were spending our money. And uh, I'm a little bit more of a saver and Anna is a little bit more of not at all a saver. And so uh, we had just had this fight about it and she like realized, I think we were both realizing like our sin in the argument. And so Anna wanted to text out to the girls, hey, we just had this argument. Would you guys be praying? I'm just realizing that I'm really bad at handling money and I need some help. Like I need some encouragement on how to grow in this. And she was really, really honest about it. Only problem is she didn't send it to the girls group me. She sent it to the whole group me. Um, to the guys and the girls. And she had this brief moment of panic, but then she just realized, I mean, she was not, she was not freaking out because in her mind it's, well, everybody already knows I'm a sinner. So it's like, this is a, they just now know some specific details about this one. (laughs) You know, like, so she's not, she's not panicking because she understands, Hey, the point of the point of following Jesus is not that I'm perfect and I never mess up. In fact, it's quite the opposite is that I constantly need grace. So even when she makes a mistake, like sending specifics on her sin to the whole group, me, she's not freaking out because she goes, well, they already knew I was imperfect. They already knew that I, I, I didn't perfectly handle my money. They already knew I was a sinner. I think that's a good example of the posture that the gospel gives us in regards to confession is that we, 
we're no longer nervous about being found out. Yeah. Because we've already, the gospel means we've already been found out. We've already been outed as imperfect sinners. And so the worst thing that could happen is somebody could find out the exact details of how we're imperfect sinners. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of the posture of confession. And as confession may even just conjure some images of like you sitting in a room and telling people your darkest, you know, deepest, darkest secret. And they kind of all just stare at you wide-eyed and just kind of nod in silence. Um, ideally, that's kind of not how it happens in our church family. Like, it, what we really want to see is it, it kind of happens in the context of everyday life. Um, so, here's kind of even a really recent example. So, my, my mom passed away a year ago last month, and I just got hit with some severe depression. It just, it was crippling, it, and it just kind of came out of nowhere. And I was hanging out with a couple guys um, in my life group, and this someone just asked me, "Hey, man, how are you doing?" There's everything in me want to go. I'm good. I am. I'm great, but for, for whatever reason, like, I think like God was just working in my life, even though I was just feeling really down. I, was, I actually answered the question. I actually kind of let them in on how exactly I'm doing. I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing well. I'm actually doing really bad. Like, this is kind of where I'm at. I, I, I want to just want to kind of seclude myself from everyone. I want to just hide. I just want to read a book. I, I just want to be alone. This is just kind of crushing me. Um, I want to kind of pull away from you guys and not tell you guys what's actually going on inside of me. Um, but it was... I'm glad that I got to do that because then the guys get to come around me, kind of get encourage me with the gospel, get to kind of remind me, of, and even just uh, mourn with me. You know, just kind of, hey man, you're not alone in this. We're we're right next to you. I- I'm sorry that this is hitting you really hard. So it was just there's just something be- beautiful about that, and and it just happens in the context of everyday life. It doesn't have to be, uh, me, all right, everyone come together, let's have a you know big powwow. It's just us hanging out, and we just ask, hey man, how, how are you doing? How, how how's your week going? You know, and we actually get to be honest about it. Um, and so, and then from there on, they, they were able to kind of follow, you know, ask me good follow-up questions to check in with me how I'm doing and kind of help me, give me space to grieve and then also don't let me just seclude and isolate myself, you know. So, um, but that's that's kind of like what, what we want to see. Like, we want to see us regularly confessing in everyday context um, and then which kind of even help us to speak the gospel to one another. So that leads us to our next heading there, which is uh, speaking the gospel. Because we believe that the gospel has the power to change us, mm-hmm. uh, we want to become experts at speaking the gospel to one another. We want to become experts at speaking the gospel to one another. So if the gospel is good news, if that's what actually addresses our sin, then we want to be able to speak that to other people. So uh, the goal is that if we're hanging out as a life group and somebody in my life group confesses that they're struggling with anxiety, like they're just really anxious, been worrying about a lot of stuff recently, there's a few different ways that we could respond. Like Jeff said, sometimes uh, when we don't do it great, people just respond by staring at you and going, huh, and that's obviously not the goal. Uh, the, the second way that I've heard some people respond, and sometimes this happens if you're like in an accountability group or something like that, is that you'll say, hey, I'm really struggling with being anxious, and somebody will go, well, you know the Bible says not to be anxious. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like. And now I'm anxious about that. Yeah, now I'm anxious about that. <laughs> On top of that. And, and here's the thing. That is technically true. The Bible does say not to be anxious. But was that the most helpful thing to say to somebody who just confessed? Probably not. There were probably more helpful. Do it. Yeah, 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 that's what they even say. Well, and some of it comes from this like idea that we have of the Bible being an encyclopedia. So it's like somebody says the word anxious, and we go the Rolodex in our head goes off, and it's like oh, verse about don't be anxious. The Bible says don't be anxious. You're welcome. Glad I could help. Oh, that's so helpful. That changes everything. Because usually the response by that person is going to be to go. 
yeah, I know that the Bible says not to be anxious. That's why I confessed it. Uh, I've gotten that far in the journey so far. Uh, so what is better to respond with is the gospel. We want to be able to not just say, hey, don't be anxious. We want to say, hey, listen, I'm with you. I have definitely felt anxious before. Thanks so much for telling us about that. Uh, here's what I want to remind you of. The Bible says that uh, we can trust that God is for our good, that he's looking out for our good. We know that because of the cross. We know that even in the cross, when it seemed like things were out of control and nothing was happening the way it should, that God was even working that for our good so that we could be made in the right relationship with him. And if that's true, I assure you that God can work good in what you're doing. Now, I know that I just said a lot of words. Our expectation is not that all of you get to that spot like today, this afternoon. That takes time. So something that we say a lot when it comes to speaking the gospel is that it's almost like learning to speak a different language. So how many people know like a second language other than English? I actually don't. Okay. So when you first learn another language, Ryan, when you first learn a second language, what do you have to do in order to speak it immediately? Like if somebody speaks to you, what's the language that you know other than Spanish? Spanish? If somebody speaks to you in, in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, math. Math is also a good language. What, the first time you have to do what? You have to take that in Spanish. You have to translate it to English in your mind. Come up with your response in English. Translate it back into Spanish and then say it out loud. It, it takes some steps. And usually it's kind of clunky and awkward, right? Mm-hmm. And what, but what happens over time is you actually learn to think in the other language. You actually learn to formulate your response in Spanish and speak it back to them, and it becomes a little bit less awkward and a little bit less clunky. And over time, you're actually able to have the conversation very naturally. It's kind of the same thing with learning to speak the gospel. In the beginning, it's not going to feel like the most natural thing to just respond with this beautifully eloquent summation of the gospel in regards to their anxiety or their lust or whatever they're dealing with. But the goal is that over time, as you practice it, it becomes more and more natural. And before long, you're actually able to think in terms of the gospel, and you speaking the gospel to other people actually helps you think in the language of the gospel yourself so that you can speak it back to other people. Does that make sense? So uh, don't be intimidated by uh, other people being able to speak the gospel to people a little bit more eloquently than you. That's not that big of a deal. The goal is that we're getting there over time. We're learning how to speak the gospel to one another. Because ultimately, here's the thing about truth. Uh, Truth is very hard to remind yourself of. A lot of times when somebody else speaks truth over you, you just have this ability to go, wow, that's true. I can't believe I forgot that that was true. Uh, and that's where we want to get. We want to get to the place where even when we're not doing well, kind of like the situation that Jeff just described, man, it's when you're not doing well, it is difficult to remember what's true when it's all happening inside your brain. The goal is that we have a community that even when we can't think in terms of the gospel ourselves, when we're not doing great, they can speak the gospel over us and remind us of what's true about God and about us. Yeah. And that's the goal of speaking the gospel. And that's and an easy like litmus test for you to kind of to see if you're speaking the gospel is can you start out your response with, I have good news for you. Yeah. Here, I got some good news for you. In the midst of whatever you're dealing with, here's, here's some good news. So, for example, that would not work with the don't be anxious thing. You could not say, hey, I've got good news for you. The Bible says don't be anxious. Right. That's not <laughs> that, actually good news. Not good news. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. Um, you want to be able to say, hey, I have good news for you. Here's what Jesus did on your behalf. Here's what's true of you. That's good news that you get to walk in. Yeah. 
that's the idea with speaking the gospel. Uh, and then our last little section is gospel-driven repentance. Gospel-driven repentance. Ultimately, the goal of confession and speaking the gospel is that it would lead us to repentance. So repentance is a word that kind of has like an old school kind of rap to it. Um, but all repentance means is turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. Turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. So this is another thing that I think the church sometimes has communicated that repentance is like a one-time thing you do. That's like what you do at the altar call. You're repenting. And that is repentance. But uh, one of the things that Martin Luther actually wrote in his theses um, is he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And so the idea with repentance is repentance is not just a one-time thing you do when you become a Christian. It's what you do ongoingly as a Christian. All of life as a Christian is seeing your sin, turning from it, and walking in freedom because of the gospel. And it's almost by nature that's what we do. So I think another pastor who's smarter than us once said, birds fly, fish swim, Christians repent. That's just how naturally it comes. Part of following Jesus, that is what it looks like, the continuous repenting of the things that you, the, the wrong things that we love, the wrong things that we think, the, the things that we do wrong, and turning into to Jesus and going, this that's how, this is actually what it's supposed to be. Yep. And so repentance, uh, practically speaking, includes a change of heart and a change in action. A change of heart and a change in action. So I'll give you a few examples of what repentance might look like for different people. For the alcoholic, uh, repentance looks like acknowledging the heart issue that alcohol doesn't provide the life that Jesus does, as well as deciding to set up some practical boundaries about when I shouldn't be around alcohol. So for the alcoholic, it's a heart level change and it's a hands level change. Um, for the person looking at porn, repentance looks like acknowledging the sin of lust, acknowledging that that's not the way sexuality should be practiced. But it also looks like setting up boundaries, having software on your computer, having different ways to protect yourself against that sin. So it's both a change in heart and a change in action. For the person who struggles with gossiping, it looks like acknowledging that gossip is wrong and acknowledging that your heart is looking towards uh, appearing better to people because you're downing other people. But it also looks like telling people around you, hey, don't let me get away with gossiping about people. Like, call me out on it if I'm gossiping. So it's a change in heart and a change in action. Repentance actually includes both. Um, when we repent, we show the gospel to actually be the good news that it is. We show the gospel to actually be good news. If the gospel really is good news, then returning again and again to the gospel through repentance is the best possible thing that we can do. It's to show that the gospel is actually better than anything else we're chasing after. Um, when we understand and believe the gospel, repentance is the best possible thing we could do. Repentance is an act of worship. So growth as a Christian includes gospel-driven confession, speaking the gospel, gospel-driven repentance. These are the things that we want to mark us as people. What it means to be Jesus-centered is to have all those things be true of you. Now, don't get overwhelmed if that sounds like a lot. Like, like we said, the goal is that these are happening over time, that we're growing into these things. But the goal is that as we practice all of these things, we would be a group of people that call attention to the good news of the gospel that we would actually show it to be the good news that it is, and that's what it means to be Jesus-centered.